From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. This episode, we're bringing on three guests to help celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Cretona Institute, the um, Ojai flagship of the Theosophical Society, with three of their principal directors, with Maria Parison, Elena Davos Santos, and Pablo Sender, PhD. So a lot of the history of this we don't think is anywhere near as um, well known in Ojai as it should be. So there's a lot to talk about, and I think you're going to learn some things. Maybe I did. And the 100th anniversary coming up this spring, there will be a lot to celebrate. Thanks for joining me. We have all these luminaries from the from Cretona, and big date coming up next year, right? We do big celebration. Why don't you give me some background on that, or let's just talk about what you got planned. Well, it's going to be our 100th year in Ojai. That doesn't mean we were founded 100 years ago. No, much, much earlier than that. Yes, 1912, actually, was when we were founded, but we moved to Ojai in 1924. And from uh, Hollywood Bowl, right, where Hollywood Bowl is now? It's like 10 acres. It's under the Hollywood sign, Beachwood Mm -hmm. Canyon. And there's still buildings, right? They're still, that are in use, right? They've been turned into apartments, Okay, but they're fabulous buildings, fabulous architecture. Yeah. Well, that was a move was instituted. What was the precipitating event they were looking to have a a place for Krishnamurti and then the school? So there was like in those from 1923 or 1924 on, there was like a big burst of activity, right? There was a lot going on. Yes, but the the problem was that uh, Hollywood was becoming too busy mm-hmm. and also the land was more expensive and the taxes. So it was difficult to maintain the compound and they decided to seek for a place that was more remote mm-hmm. and um, they chose Ojai. They knew Ojai because there was a member living here in Ojai, which is a, he, she lived actually in the house where... Is that Mary Gray? Yeah, where Krishnamurti. Okay. Now I remember. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, why they decided to come to Ojai. But of course, when Annie Besant came, she recognized immediately that the valley was special from a spiritual point of view. She mm-hmm. foresaw that this was going to be a spiritual place. Yeah. Now, I don't know. You have to correct me on this, but at the time, it was believed that the sixth race was going to emerge in Ohio. Yeah, the or idea... Was the fifth? No, 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 six sub-races. Six sub-races, the, okay. the, in theosophy, the idea is that there are all these evolutionary cycles. Mm-hmm. They are There are seven of them. And um, the idea is that in gen- the general location of California is where a new approach to life was going to start. Mm-hmm. So that was also part of the, the interest in Ojai. Yeah. It was more like uh, the idea that this would be a birthplace 
for a more spiritually awakened humanity. Yeah, I think that's partly a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. think Ojai has that mystique. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the seventh race was going to be just like beings of pure energy, right? Like we're going to evolve beyond the corporeal form, is that right? Yes, but uh, there are like cycles and sub-cycles. In the, the big cycle, we are still in the, fir- in the f- uh, fifth root race, the fifth evolutionary yeah. cycle. Yeah, and within to the sixth, yeah. Huh? Yeah, and within that, there are seven sub-cycles, and that's the one that is coming up, the seven, the sixth sub-race. Of the fifth? Of the fifth root race. This is complicated, but let's say, you know, it's the sixth sub-cycle of the fifth one. Then there okay. will come a sixth and the seventh, that is the one that you are uh, talking about. Uh, that is a few million years in the future. Okay, yeah. so don't hold your breath. No. <laughs> no. Interesting. So, Maria, you've been there a very long time, right, aren't you? Um, for 20 years. 20 years, yeah. okay. Yeah. Did you know Joy Mills? Very well, very yeah, well. Yeah, she was a long-time figure there, right? And a yeah. public speaker of some renown. Um, yes, she was. Yeah. Was she like the heart of the place for many years? Because to me, as an outsider, I see her name come up on bylines and press releases and, you know, events coming up and stuff. Was she? she was, although she interrupted her residency in Cretona to become the president of the Australian section of the society. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so that was uh, an interesting interlude. And she was, well, I think into her 70s, maybe even more, when she took that on. Yeah, and like then came whole, back whole uh, to, to teach for Crotona and uh, continue her work for the American section. Okay. Well, Very Joy nice. was a real luminary because she was president of the Theosophical Society in America and then became international president mm-hmm. of the TS in India prior to her coming to Crotona. So she was already pretty famous and established. Yeah, I know. It's interesting how these people who are world famous in Ojai are just regular folks and neighbors. That's right. Yeah. So tell us more about what you got planned for the centennial. Well, in April, it's uh, actually it's over a couple of weeks from April 2012th to the 26th. We have the Cretona's um, president is actually uh, in Australia, and she and her husband are coming in. They're going to do some teaching for us for one week. Uh, And that's on a a theosophical classic called The Voice of the Silence. It's a mystic text that has to do with um, meditation and the um, unfolding of consciousness into something more universal, more compassionate, more wise. Um, and that will be for about five days, and then we have um, in kind of an interlude weekend, and we have um, uh, Peter Russell coming in mm-hmm. to do uh, something on Saturday for us in the afternoon, and he will bring, I think, uh, a very interesting uh, perspective to Earth Day weekend. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. That's right, and the timing, yeah. Yeah, good timing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then we have an opening of the, uh, the kind of the celebration opening and uh, after Peter 
on Sunday, and that will involve our mayor, Betsy Sticks, and um, probably Julie, our Chumash elder, Mm -hmm. and then Lanny Coffer in the afternoon doing something about our relations with the earth from his point of view. herb walk. Yeah, yeah. Very nice. And we may do some of that on the grounds as well. And then we have another four days of teaching after that, and the theme for that part is um, uh, transformation within, without. So this is the idea that all real change comes from a change in consciousness, and um, that's what we're looking for here, something more wider, more expansive, more inclusive, mm-hmm. more, um, more full of life. Lovely. <laughs> so what is the, how many, you know, how, do you, how many people do you expect? Like, well, uh, oh, we're going to have a lot of coming and going during the whole time yeah. because it begins actually with a retreat. Um, but I would think, I don't know, it's hard to tell. Right? Yeah, sure, we, yeah, we can house on campus, we can house perhaps 30 um, okay. right on the on, on grounds, and then um, we've got some arrangements with some of them. For locals to areas. host. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And is a lot of this that you're doing, you, you already do some versions of these retreats and meditations and stuff now, right? Uh-huh. Isn't that part of the... So you're just bringing it all together for this one event? Yeah. Yeah. And then what? What is the, you know, the next hundred years going to look like? <laughs> you know, they do say the first hundred years is the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things for the first, the next hundred years is um, to, um, to continue to build a community there. Because we have now 30 residents, and including mm-hmm. a couple of children, is that capacity? Seems like there's a lot. Uh, of, that, lot of we've got a little space, but not yeah. much more. And um, everything comes out of the work we do together. Mm. You know how deeply we can connect with one another, how harmoniously we can get the work done that needs to be done. Everyone fulfilling their volunteer responsibilities, and um, uh, and then reaching out in more effective ways with the central principles that we bring, uh, which are universal and critical for, for um, Ojai. Oh my goodness, yeah. especially for Ojai. Um, and also, because we're an international center, mm-hmm. so we're, f- we're really nourishing and growing from the whole theosophical movement worldwide. And there are centers in England and India and Australia and Wales. Oh, well, Pablo teaches it, most of them, so. (laughs) And Elena as well. Yes, the society is in about 60 countries, but not all of them have centers like Crotona. So there are a few centers in the world, as you said, in Australia, in the Netherlands, in India, Brazil, Argentina. There, There are some centers around And uh, now, with the possibility of giving online classes, we are expanding our reach, and uh, we are being more involved in providing uh, theosophical education to members of the society internationally. So this is, I think, uh, part of the direction that we are taking in in the next uh, 
at least in the next decade or so, and then we not, see. Not, not looking forward, uh, not looking, uh, planning a hundred years out yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is the total membership? Do you guys keep uh, like roles enrollment? Yeah, we Crotona doesn't really have a membership. We we uh, provide education for uh, the public in general and the members of the Theosophical Society, but we don't really have a system of membership, right? No, no, we don't. We're also more like a spiritual center, so a little bit different from the other centers because we focus more on living the teachings rather than just teaching it and trying to spread it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are centers uh, around the world that have different uh, roles, and Crotona from the beginning was thought to be something like an ashram, in a sense, mm-hmm. a place where people would come primarily to live together in a spiritual way. And of course, the education aspect uh, is there from the very beginning. But the emphasis is not so much uh, outreach, um, but it's to offer to others what we think is valuable. Um, but the, the emphasis in it is in trying to, to maintain that place as a spiritual center. Yeah. Now, what is the, like, theosophy in worldwide what is do you have any idea what the membership yes the tens of thousands i would imagine yes yes there are the the things that in the theosophical society you can participate in its activities without necessarily being a member member. it's not not like a church or like a congregation so we do have around the world is generally about thirty thousand members but the people that come to our activities are far more Mm -hmm. uh, like you know, just in on YouTube, uh, the YouTube channel of the Theosophical Society in America have a few hundred thousands uh, mm-hmm. people. Um, that and these are, are events here that, that some of the events here are taped and posted on yes. YouTube. Yeah. Yes, yes, we are mm. we are working on. Uh, we have created a YouTube channel. So part of what we are working on right now is taking advantage of all the technology to provide. Yeah. Was this? Uh, enhanced or spurred or motivated by the pandemic or was this already underway did you already have a youtube channel before that um in the the we we were connected in with the theosophical society in america in several ways and uh the the ts in america has had a youtube channel and online classes way before the pandemic Uh, and then we started organizing also our online classes before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and we were ready for that. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Were you getting a uh, lot of new people checking in during the pandemic? Was it a time of curiosity and exploration and people wondering what's, what's this all about? There was an increase of people, mainly because they could participate online yeah. without having to travel. But still, it's very important to come to Crotona. We want to uh, support programs that people come here because it's the whole experience of mm-hmm. being in the center. And being in Ojai. And being in Ojai, yeah. yeah. Now, Crotona is, well, what, how did it get its name? I, I never even thought to ask that, but I'm curious. <laughs> yes, the, the name comes from uh, Crotone or Croton in Italy. Oh, yes, of course, I did know yes, that. Yeah. It was uh, the center that Pythagoras established, the Pythagorean school 
okay. was established in Calabria in Italy. Yeah, the very boot, part. right? The very southern part of Italy. Yes, mm -hmm. in the southern part, yes. Mm -hmm. Just uh, before the toe of the boot. <laughs> yeah. Are, yes. are there, is there a Theosophy Center there now in Cretona? I don't know if in Crotone in particular, it, Italy, they have a strong theosophical okay. society, but I don't know. But originally, they wanted to create for Crotone a community where people could also uh, work within Crotona, like, like a little city or town. Mm -hmm. And that's why they were thinking on the lines of, of uh, Pythagoras uh, Academy, which was also a town. Um, and that's uh, part of why they, they chose that name. Yeah. Now, Terramina. I lived in Terramina when I first got here for like a year. First got to Ojai in 2000. And that is also a community in Italy as well, right? Mm -hmm. Close to Crotona, too. Yeah, and no connection with uh, theosophy now, right? Not no, Krishnamurti spent some time in Taormina. Yeah, uh, and had important well, wasn't experiences. It was part there. of the, wasn't it like the I mean in overflow? Taormina in Italy. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I was talking about Taormina in mm -hmm. Ojai is bifurcated from, from Theosophy now, but it was part of the community, right? Mm -hmm. It was intended originally to be um, a kind of a retirement community. Yes. Uh -huh. And that Theosophists from there would also help out in Cretona in various ways. Mm -hmm. But then um, the, the, uh, the folks who came in there from the society handed over their homes to their children, and the children were not quite involved in the same way. Yeah. Little by little, it became just a regular Secular. community. But yeah. we still have friends there, who, some who volunteer in Crotona mm -hmm. and uh, walk their dogs, and, and um, so it, it's still very friendly. Yeah. Um. When I was there, I know the CCNR still had theosophist um, restrictions about eating meat and barbecuing meat and stuff. <laughs> right. So I found it very quaint. But that was part of the original charter. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, you mm -hmm. could tell the DNA of the place still retained some of the of its origins. Right. But I, I loved it because you just walk up to the top of the hill there, and I think by where John Lambert Lown and Limba Lambert live, there's a gate that you can get onto. Mm -hmm. Cretona. It was just a one, yes, <laughs> wonderful place to just stroll around the top of the hill. I always think of Cretona as being like, you got the Ojai Valley laid out from east to west, and then it's like the navel, like the hill <laughs> is like very much in the very center of Ojai. It's an interesting location. I imagine that definitely played part of, the, of it being built, like mm -hmm. this is the site. Yes, Annie Besant because she was the international president of the society, she would go around the world giving lectures and uh, she helped with fundraising to not only to buy the land in Crotona and the back of Crotona also, mm -hmm. uh, but also all the part where the Besan Hill School yeah, is now. And the Ojai Foundation. And the Ojai well, yeah. Foundation. Hundreds I, of acres. Yes. And, I, and, and she. she created some foundations and established that those lands cannot be used for commercial purposes, but only for education purposes. Mm -hmm. And I, I always have the impression that that shaped the valley in the sense that it locked 
the valley to commercial endeavors and allow the valley to develop, you know, more spiritually. Mm-hmm. Because all that land could not be used commercially. Yeah, and I don't know how many people really understand the merging of Eastern and Western philosophies that went through, you know, Madame Blavatsky and mm-hmm. Annie Besant, and how important it was to Ojai's origin. This is like the first first place I know of, like Alan Watts and so forth, who also had their connections to Ojai, were famous for popularizing, you know, Zen Buddhism and things like that in the '60s. But, you know, half a century before that, it was already happening here in Ojai. It's pretty mm-hmm. remarkable. Yes. I think that's part of the history of Ojai that not everybody really gets or understands how important that was to our identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our cultural DNA, if you like. Yeah, I think Croton and, and Krishnamurti set that tone here. And then many other spiritual organizations and, and spiritually minded people began to come to Ojai. Yeah. Not many people know that when Cortona was founded, the city of Ojai had been incorporated only three years prior. So, yeah, 1921. Yes. A so lot of people think Ojai was 1917, but that's not official. That was the, you know, the great fire of 1916 left a blank slate for everybody to build on. So the, all that energy that came in with Edmund Drummond Libby and Harry Sinclair and hiring all these fantastic architects to reconstruct Ojai from the ground up. Uh, really, a, a planned community. Yeah. One of the very first in this country. Yeah. The Quite leading, remarkable. The leading person uh, building Crotona, Warrington, he was a... AP Warrington? Yes. Okay. He I don't act- know why that sticks in my head, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's good. He actually helped bringing water to Ojai. He was involved in, in, in building Ojai, too. And mm. we have letters where he was uh, involved in, in all of that because we needed it also for Crotona. So he, uh, with along with some people in the town, uh, they started moving all this to, for it to happen. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Annie Besant, although she's probably one of the most important people in Ohio, she only spent like five or six months here, right? Six or seven months, is that right? Mm. Tell, tell me about that. What was... 1927 or whenever she came here to see what was going on I imagine Mm -hmm. she set in motion all these land purposes and construction and so she wanted to check it out yeah and she was always in communication with Warrington and um, setting the tone of what Warrington would would always consult her and say because he really trusted uh, Annie Besant and her vision and just trying to see what kind of community Crotona should be, etc. Uh, so what Crotona is, is very much shaped by Annie Betson's vision and then the work of many people here mm-hmm. in, in California. It was an interesting juxtaposition of these Eastern industrialists that, you know, come out here for the to take the air, you know, the, the warm winter air from their, you know, Ohio or Massachusetts in these places. And then these spiritual leaders with a great, you know, Eastern mysticism. Just a, just very strange. Just very <laughs> interesting. So I feel that energy is still here, that hybrid energy. And I think it's, like, important for people of different beliefs and traditions and faiths to kind of bump up against each other. Mm-hmm. And that happens here. I always think Ojai is a model for a lot of the issues in, the, in our country today, the polarization and stuff, how... Mm-hmm. People come together and move past that. Yeah. 
Definitely. Yeah. And Annie Besant was fascinating. I'd like to talk a little bit about her because she's so key to Ojai. But I learned recently, in fact, it was just <clears throat> after we were having a discussion about Annie Besant, somebody told me that she pronounced her name Besant because her husband's name was Besant. Mm-hmm. And she was not, she could not get a divorce. It was a huge scandal of England in the 1870s or whatever, mm-hmm. something like that. She lost custody of her children. Mm-hmm. It's really sad. Did you know that? Absolutely. Really yeah. tra- traumatic. And it was because she was spreading around this book of uh, natural contraception, mm-hmm. which was a New England doctor, Massachusetts doctor in western Massachusetts, who, you know, he had this... This is like the 1810s or something, very early pioneer doctor, and he helped people figure out how not to have more children yeah. and how to do, you know, how sex can be a positive, joyous thing. And, mm-hmm. and it was so radical that even 60 years later, they banned the book, England. You know, the book had sold like 500 copies. Annie <laughs> Besant and I forget the Brad, name of the other. Bradlow. Bradlow. Mm-hmm. They've republished it, started passing it around. And as soon as they got arrested and charged, the book sold 750,000 copies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it always happens. Yeah. Yes, she was concerned. She was an activist in London, and this was before she came. She joined the TS. And she was concerned that uh, poor people were the ones that were having the most children, and they were the least... Uh, able to sustain them. Mm-hmm. So uh, she and Bradlaw uh, understood that they had to educate people in sexual education, but that was, of course, considered pornography. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was told that if she continued to promote this, she was going to lose custody of her daughter. Uh, the son had stayed with the, with the dad. And uh, she said, you know, we, will I... Um, allow other children to suffer just to retain my own daughter. Everybody's mm-hmm. my child, you know, she felt. And then she took her chances. And it was really tough on her. She actually considered just drinking chloroform and just ending. Getting out. Yeah. It was really tough on her. Yeah. But she, her her sense of, you know, of service and compassion was really strong. It's, it's remarkable. Well, the fact that it was such a national scandal in England at the time. It was headlines all the t- every day. And there wasn't, you know, you figure the book was so enormously popular, obviously she'd hit a nerve, that there wasn't enough public will or sentiment to say, you can't take this woman's child away. Mm-hmm. And yet they did. Yeah. That was the whole justice system. Yeah. And we still feel echoes of that today. It's not on the side of the oppressed, it's on the side of the oppressors. Yeah. No, and also it was a really difficult time for a woman. Uh, She went to college and she couldn't uh, get the degree because there was a teacher that said, as long as I am alive, I won't allow any woman to get the degree. And she couldn't get that that last, you know, uh, subject approved. And uh, she couldn't have any, any property from her years of marriage. Uh, it was a really tough time, but th- early theosophists were the first uh, feminists, mm-hmm. um, and they, they began to roll a feminist movement in Europe. 
And you figure the Indian independence movement yeah, was I mean, a huge, not feather in their cap, a huge achievement because Gandhi himself said that Annie Besant was his role model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he looked up to her. Now, she considered him too much of a philosopher and not enough of a warrior. Mm-hmm. But, you know, history tells the tale. Yeah, I, I, well, I lived in India for a couple of years and there was a scholar from the university in Varanasi and she said, looking back, the proposals of Annie Besant and Gandhi, uh, we can see that Annie Besant's proposal was better because she wanted India to stay within the Commonwealth, kind of like Australia, or let's Canada. say. Home rule, or, or Canada, home rule, but within the Commonwealth. And uh, because she said, uh, there are many uneducated people, farmers that have no idea of politics or anything, and you cannot ask them, these people to start voting without first educating them. That mm-hmm. was her her view. So she said, you, you have to go slowly with this. And Gandhi was more radical. And she thought that India was going to plunge into corruption if it was left alone all of a sudden mm-hmm. without any previous education in politics and democracy. Uh, but Gandhi was more radical and she was older. So when after she died, Gandhi took over. Yeah. But I'm not sure how many people make the connection between Ojai and, you know, these post-colonial movements, mm-hmm. much of which was fueled by Annie Besant's. I mean, she's so far ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. And the story about her and Madame Blavatsky, and please correct me if I get it wrong, but she was basically met Madame Blavatsky to prove that she was a fraud, mm-hmm. that she was working for a newspaper. She was a prolific writer, thousands of articles and hundred books or something, tracks that she had written about virtually every question of the day. She was a prolific pamphleteer, and she was hired to investigate Madame Blavatsky, who did have some kind of like, she was out there for her, way out there. So I don't know what happened. What happened? How did she get, uh, how did she, uh, what do you call that when you, uh, Stockholm Syndrome, she started identifying with her captors. What happened? Uh, she was given to review the Secret Doctrine. That was a book that Blavatsky wrote. Was that uh, based on the Akashic record? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, Blavatsky's um, uh, investigations on, on higher planes. Mm-hmm. She explained that she would go into a state of meditation. And, mm-hmm. You know, at the time, all that was very unknown. Today we know about yogis and all that, but at the time, the West didn't know anything about that. And Annie Besant was a, an atheist, but she says that when she started reading The Secret Doctrine to review it, something changed in, mm-hmm. in her. So eventually she went to look into Blavatsky, and she says the first thing that Blavatsky did was to give me the Hudson Report, that was the report from the Society for Psychical Research, where they accused Blavatsky to be a fraud, yeah. and say, read this, look if the proofs are good, and then come and, and see me if you still think that uh, I'm not a fraud. And then she said that she looked into the report and she decided that the report was not, uh, that that was flawed. And actually, a hundred years later, the Society for Psychical Research uh, wrote a, an article saying that, that Hudson had disregarded a lot of proofs that were supporting Blavatsky, so mm-hmm. they disowned the report. And that's how Besant uh, turned. Uh, and this is like eight, late 1870s, early 1880s, somewhere around uh, 80, 89. 
1889. And she quickly became a leader in the theosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, just because she had such organizational capacity, I think. Yes, it is said that when, uh, before HPV passed, she wanted, she expressed her wish that Annie Besant would um, eventually take over as president after Colonel Olcott. And so she did. She became the second yeah. international president of the society. And really, I think she just... Because there was like an associate, because people weren't really ready for Madame Blavatsky, and she was so um, bizarre, I guess, mm -hmm. that yeah. it was hard for her to make a mainstream appeal. Whereas mm -hmm. Annie Besant had such a long history already of organizing and protests, and, you know, she was a public figure long before she became involved with theosophy. Yeah, so I think that was a very, strategically, that was a very smart choice. Mm -hmm. Plus, she knew everybody. She was a prolific fundraiser. Yeah. I always thought she must have been very wealthy herself, but she never was. She never mm -hmm. had money. She just knew how to get money for, for projects. She just mm -hmm. knew how to raise money, how raise significant amounts of money. Yes, yes. No, uh, Blavatsky was uh, admired Annie Besant um, years before Annie Besant came to the TS, she wrote in a letter, uh, even though she's an atheist, her speeches have far more wisdom than many of the spiritual people that are, you know, giving sermons and all that. Mm -hmm. So Blavatsky recognized something in her, and as fate has it, you know, eventually Besant crossed uh, paths with Blavatsky. Yeah. Now I'm trying to remember exactly her origin story, right? Wasn't she, parents were kind of lower middle class, Irish family, what we used to call lace curtain Irish. Does anybody still use that term anymore? <laughs> no. no. Well, that was like the fancier Irish, like my folks were more like bog shanty. And mm. then you had your lace curtain Irish, you know, they had, had pretensions of bourgeois. But she married a preacher when she was fairly young. Not a happy marriage. He was very keen on keeping her down. But she had these visions or these fantasies of, you know, addressing vast crowds. And she would practice in the church, his church, you know, and the, the empty pews, mm -hmm. her public speaking. And then she just, like, took off. She's just had such amazing career. Mm -hmm. And she was, you know, George Bernard Shaw wrote this book called The Eight Loves of George Bernard Shaw. Did you ever come across no. that? But one of his but, great loves was Annie yeah. Besant. Yeah. Wonderful. Because she was, I mean, we, we see her as this formidable, um, redoubtable woman, but she was a beautiful in her younger years. You could see why he was just mesmerized by her. Mm -hmm. But I think it was even more than her, like, physical charms. It was her just presence. Like, she was just so vibrant and alive and so committed and dedicated. It was just really... There wasn't anybody else like her at that, that no. period of time. No, they were saying at the time that uh, Besan was the, the best uh, orator in Europe. Yeah. And, um, and she was extremely intelligent. And that's part of what um, moved. When, when she was with, with her husband and listening to the sermons and all that, she started realizing that there were contradictions in the, how the Gospels, for example, Mm -hmm. spoke about the life of Jesus. So she started tabulating 
uh, all the facts and the contradictions and and that is part of what turned her into you know an atheist but then uh, she thought that science could solve the human problem and she mm -hmm. says after years of fighting for you know uh, for the people and trying to to base all this on science I I felt that uh, that wasn't the answer that by itself that there was something deeper that human beings needed mm -hmm. and that's when she came across the secret doctrine she was in that kind of transition in her thinking okay well one of the I keep hearing about the Akashic record and I really know nothing about it how does that fit into theosophy or does it I know Madame Blavatsky was a big mm -hmm. you know proponent of that but can you tell me mm -hmm. Elena do you know anything yeah. <laughs> well yeah. the Akashic records would simply be the record of everything that has ever happened in the world that is um, recorded in maybe more like the astral uh, plane or astral mm -hmm. level so everything that happens everything we do is recorded somewhere and that's what the astral records are and people who are able to see beyond just the material or physical level are able to read into the past um, into what has gone before and so many of the theosophical teachings that um, uh, describe like the history of how even our planet came to be really come from teachings of seers who have been able to look that far be um, far back into mm. the past. And there are supposed to be like physical copies of the Akashic record and certain secret shrines in Tibet and different places, or am I confusing a few other things? Well, HPV said that the, her teachers had a record of history, of the history of humanity. Uh, and I don't know if, you know, from the Akashic records or records that were kept generation after generation, but mm -hmm. she did say that they, they yeah, have a record. A comprehensive chronicle. Mm -hmm. Very nice. I yeah. imagine that would be quite something if you mm -hmm. come across it. Yeah, actually, like the Indiana Jones movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the term Akashic record was uh, coined by, by the uh, Olcott, the first president of the okay. Theosophical Society. Uh, and then, of course, it became quite popular. Yeah. And still today, is that uh, part of the background of everything? More or less. I, um, I mean, the, it's a fact, or we consider that a fact in nature, but uh, we are more interested in, in the spiritual development mm. and, and all, all of that. So uh, even though it's part of the teachings, we don't place special emphasis on that. You okay. know, today there are people reading the Akashic records of people and all that. Uh, in the theosophical view, things are far more complex. Mm. I mean, there are many things that you may see that may not be the records. Uh, but yeah, well, it just, it just overwhelms me to even try to grasp something of that magnitude because mm -hmm. so much happens. There's just so much that happens. Well, speaking of development, I'd like to know more about you folks, Maria, how did you come to Theosophy in Ojai, and what, what was your journey? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, yes, it, it, it is interesting because um, Crotona, as a community, we have people who, of, who's up with about eight different countries of origin, and the stories are quite amazing uh, in some cases. 
Um, my own is, um, is a familiar one, actually. I uh, was raised Roman Catholic but with a mother who had no use for priests and um, a father who was um, kind of a nominal uh, guy. But anyway, um, I was not particularly... I, I loved the rituals, mm-hmm. and um, but was never very interested in the the details of the, the Bible and so, so forth. Where, where yeah. did you grow up? Uh, in the Midwest, in Ohio, and then um, my husband was working for GM in Detroit. We raised our family there mm-hmm. um, and joined the society there. There were a couple of what they called spotlight workers at the time who rented a big ballroom in Detroit downtown Detroit. It was filled. They stayed for five nights, did all the arranging themselves, and did a, a series of talks on things like the unity of life, the afterlife and reincarnation, the so importance about, of cycles. How, about what, uh, did you have kids and you were like, a, what, what was the context of you being curious about this? Well, because um, my mother was a theosophist mm. without my knowing, but she called when we were, this was in 69, and um, she said there were a couple of speakers coming in town in Detroit. We went, we were very interested in what was being said, joined a small study center, and it started from there. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we joined a big um, theosophical center in Detroit downtown. And um, I eventually, when our uh, boys were, were uh, uh, old enough, I started coming out here to, uh, to because I just uh, was drawn to Cretona. And, um, was it uh, more Krishnamurti-related at that Not point? at all. It no, already it had was, the, oh, yeah, because yeah, that happened in 1927 or something, the, the leaderless path. Was that yeah. when Krishnamurti renounced his world teacher role? I don't know all that, all that stuff, but it's just interesting to me that this, these great movements of spiritual life that all happened globally, you know, they were centered right here. Mm-hmm. So you came to Ohio I came just out to of as a student, uh, also to do a little teaching, and I, uh, a group of us would go down to listen to Krishnamurti in the Oak Grove, because we could walk right down there yeah. from Cretona's Hill. Uh, really, really was drawn to him as well. But the anchoring has always been in the society, mm-hmm. and the the teachings uh, have all made a whole lot of sense to me. That mm-hmm. really, it gave some structure to what I had been experiencing in my own life and uh, put me right in the center of a community of people who were um, open-minded, curious, um, really uh, interested in building communities that work together well. Yeah. So you think the fellowship was a big part of the experience Absolutely. for you? Absolutely. Yeah. You can't do these things alone. You really need a community to support you when you mm-hmm. begin to open your mind to, to, uh, to things that are more than yourself. Yeah. Things start coming in, and um, understandings start to come, and illusions start to be dispersed and it's painful and difficult. I can imagine. Yeah, well, you know about it because you, you know, your own writing suggests that you're, you know, connected with Ojai in a deeper way and are looking for certain things that may not be there. 
and you're making connections with the past and all of that requires enormous energy mm-hmm. and uh, faith that uh, something special is being um, revealed, determined, um, and we're all going through a really important transition time. Mm-hmm. A hundred years. So it must have been quite a experience coming from Detroit to Ojai. What, what time of year was your first visit? A week. Oh, I don't know about the first visit, but I loved it from the beginning because this, this small town energy was and has always been wonderful. Did in, you grow up in a small town in Ohio? Um, in in uh, Ohio, no, and then mm. Michigan. Oh, no. where in Ohio did so, you grow up then? In Ohio? No, in in Ohio. I get oh, that in mixed Ohio, up all Cleveland. the time. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. okay, Cleveland. Yeah, I come from Chautauqua County, which is near Buffalo. Okay, Oakland County. Yeah. Yeah. We and used to go right on the lake. Yeah, we're. I'm a Lake Erie boy myself. Yeah, yeah. But we could climb the hill by our farm and see deep into Canada. <laughs> it's really amazing. I just love that. Just you look across because all the underground railroad ran through there. Something yeah, like five yeah. to ten thousand fugitives escaped through. Chautauqua County and you could see why because you climb up that hill and you can see deep into Canada and it just yeah. feels like freedom like <laughs> there's something special about the Great Lakes I just really think it's such an, an important part of uh, yeah. this country very important plus I love the fish and hunt so I don't so much hunt anymore but but yeah Cleveland I had uh, Mike Milano on the podcast from he had an Emmy-nominated documentary, 127 shots about this terrible, tragic police chase that they shot down these two people because they were driving past the courthouse and the cops were out there smoking cigarettes or whatever on their break and their car backfired. <laughs> oh, no. So they had like hundreds of police cars chasing them from one huh. end of town to the other. One of the cops jumped up on the of the car and fired 42 shots it was so tragic but what was funny was Mike and I've known him before but when we were on the podcast we started slipping into that kind of Great Lakes accent you know like Mm -hmm. oh where'd you park your car oh oh yeah across the street yeah oh the brownies suck oh the bills are worse (laughs) you know just like I couldn't help it it's like code switching (laughs) you have no no Ohio accent at all you just don't you seem to have successfully shed it whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i imagine that ohio Myste- that that moonstruck did you ever have an ohio moon glow moment on one well of i think we visits? are in fact we just had one last night we had an intensive for five days and no it was saturday night when when, when yeah, did saturday was full moon yeah yeah, yeah full saturday moon. night we were all together out on the library library veranda when the moon rose and we were reading from the secret doctrine and it it's just, it was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then, the, and that's one of the things we really enjoy when we have a group coming in and, um, and we're studying these things that are in some ways symbolic and it just moves you mm-hmm. into a different space. And when you do that together and then sit together as the moon rises. Um, it's powerful, huh? Yeah, you know, it's these things that, um, Affirm for people something important in their lives that um, uh, there's something, uh, and it's just so ancient. We were talking about the moon itself, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you ever, some of these people who come from out of town, do you ever 
recognize yourself in them and how your experience was? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, I, I mean, it, but, we, but we try to reach the place where um, we're all coming from a, a similar space, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the small things we do when we, when we retreat together is to is to, to, to try to let go of our conditioning from the past. Because Blavatsky said, you know, when you sit down to study, you clear your mind of everything you think you've known. That's and very you, hard to do. Absolutely fresh. That internal chatter that goes on that's so annoying. So you keep yourself, and any good writer knows that. You have to let go and um, let something else in you um, begin to reach a little deeper into life, your own mm-hmm. and then somebody else's as well. And we meet each other there. That space. Rumi said something about, you know, I'll meet you there in a field where things are open, fertile, mm-hmm. clear. That sounds like <laughs> Rumi. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I love that. He's, anyway. And Alena, how? What's your What's your story? How did you <laughs> How did you find your way to Theosophy in Ojai? I was born into a Theosophical family, Mm. so my grandfather had started the Theosophical Society in the Philippines. He was founding president, and so my relatives and uncles, both my parents were Theosophists, and I grew up going to Theosophical meetings. In the Philippines, not in the Philippines, yes. So I had heard about Ojai uh, and Crotona when I was growing up was even invited to come and spend a semester in Cortona mm-hmm. and I couldn't understand how people did that because I was still in school and what what do they do do they quit school or do they stop working and spend a semester well, in yeah, that's Cortona? Well yeah that's a good question <laughs> what's the answer like how how does yes, that work? Well, um, do you have sponsorships or um, fellowships, scholarships? Yes, at that time there was a, a grant from the Kern Foundation that supported people from different parts of the world mm-hmm. to come uh, and spend months in Crotona. They would get an allowance for food mm-hmm. and they had free housing. You only had to pay for your airfare <laughs> okay. to, to come and stay and um, study theosophy. So. Uh, that's how I first heard about Cortona. And from my childhood, I always knew I would come mm. to So it's Ojai. always been in the background. It, it has all, it's, you know, sometimes you, when you're growing up, there are certain things in life that you know deep inside of you will be. Yeah. And one of them was living in Cortona someday. Nice. Did you have a picture <laughs> of it in your mind about what it would be like? Well, I saw Before pictures. Before you got here. Yes, so you yes. you did have some idea. Yes, I saw like. pictures because my relatives came here. Okay, so they had, you had stories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what was it, how did it match up when you got here? Was it like as you thought it would be? Well, Better, different? you know, you see pictures of the mountains, but you don't get the sense of the atmosphere until you're mm-hmm. actually here. Yeah. Were there any distinct impressions that you had? Maybe like the smell of the eucalyptus or the of the sage in the morning, or orange blossoms or anything like that. <laughs> that f- to me was when I first got to Hawaii. It was the you smell. Wow. It's yeah. the most incredibly lovely smelling place I've ever been. 
And this wasn't, this was like in the winter. And I'm like, how does this place smell so amazing? But it was like that, yeah. the last, um, you know, the For warm days, the sage, sit, the chaparral smell and the eucalyptus. And it's like, <laughs> wow, this place is magic. I was immediately hooked. Mm. Did you feel that too? Like For me, it was the mountains, yeah, the hills. Yes, and um, you know that that open space. <laughs> yeah. Growing up in the city, you you just oh, you grew love. Up in Manila? Yes. Okay. You so just love the city, open yeah. space. Yeah, very different. And all of nature around. That's that's what got me. <laughs> yeah. The only thing you must miss the food from the Philippines. They have some of the best street foods, and just you don't you don't miss adobo or seasick or any of those wonderful <laughs> things. <laughs> I, I was in the military, <laughs> so I always traveled around a lot, and I just always went to the street foods, and I thought the Philippines had some of the best food in the world. I grew up a vegetarian, okay. and so none of so that So no seasick, because that's like organ meats and ginger and yes. stuff, yeah. Yes, so I didn't really get to enjoy Indulge much of too that. too much, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And Paolo, what's your story? How did you get here? Um, I was uh, born and raised in Argentina. Where in Argentina? uh, I was born in the capital city, Buenos Aires, but then when I was eight, we moved to a small city in a place that has a similar weather to Ojai. Actually, there are hills, the the weather is quite similar. Um, And then I had been looking for years for some deeper view of uh, mm-hmm. of the world. So your life. family wasn't uh, didn't have any connections. No, to no, they don't. They didn't. So we you found found your own way there. Huh? Yes, and eventually when I I I uh, ran into the society, I I saw that that's what I was looking for. I I loved the, you knew the it right approach. Away. Yeah, right away. Um, then I was in college, uh, then after I finished... In fin- Argentina? In Argentina, well. yes. Uh, after I finished uh, my PhD, I left uh, science. I, I have a PhD in science, so I left oh. science hmm. and went to live to the international headquarters in India, uh, in Ajar. And then I lived for a couple of years there. Somebody invited me to come to the U.S. to Wheaton, where it's the national center of the, mm-hmm. of the TS. So you knew right away this was going to be your life? Uh, when so even though you, because getting a PhD yes. in science is a big deal. Yes. Like, but um, but it, was, it seems like a major investment to just kind of... It is. To make that move into... But I always say that theosophy ruined my love for science because I I really loved science. I worked in research, in molecular biology. But when I started uh, learning about this worldview that is so far vaster than what science proposes, Mm -hmm. uh, science just lost, you know, its charm in a sense. I'm interested in science, but science was not enough. To me, it was a very narrow view of life. So the opportunity came, and I didn't even think about it. I just left science. Yeah, and how old were you about that time? I was 28. Yeah, couldn't have been too long ago. You don't look very old. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm close to 50. No way. Yeah. Um, but I always had, in Argentina, I always had the sense that I was going to be living here in Crotona. I don't really? know why. I never saw a picture of Crotona. Uh, I knew that Cortona was a, a theosophical center as others in the mm-hmm. world. And I just ended up here. It's not something that I actively sought, but like You just had a recognition here. somehow. Yeah. And yeah, when I came to Cortona, I, I, 
I, I felt it very familiar. And when you were asking Maria if you recognize, you know, in others all those early, you know, states, uh, I, I see people saying, "Oh, it would be. It, this is so beautifully, so peaceful. It would be so wonderful to live here." And that's exactly what uh, I, I used mm. to feel. I used to come to Crotona once a year around. Uh, you know, to teach. I was living in Wheaton in, in Illinois. Uh, oh. is, there a, is there a the national, center there yeah, Wheaton? Yeah, the National Center of the Theosophical Society. So I was an employee there working for, for the TSR and coming once a year and mm -hmm. I just loved it. And eventually, and always talking, yeah, it would be great to live here. And and then eventually some, you know, conversations happened and we moved here with my wife mm. eight years ago. Nice. Lovely. So um, we're coming up on an hour, believe it or not. Um, just wanted to maybe get some understanding of what, what it is you you do. We'll start with Maria. What, if you were to describe your job with Katona, um, what would you say? Uh, well, I direct the school and I have two residents, women, who work with me in the school. Um, we do program planning. We um, and do all of the things a regular school would do. We're not accredited. We're adult ed for the most part. Mm -hmm. Although we do have occasional programs that involve that you know reach out to children and young families. Um, but we're we're the ones who are looking for speakers, um, arranging the programs, um, managing the student housing, um, mm -hmm. and and all of that that goes goes with that. So. That's pretty much my work. Uh, I also sit on the board of directors, as does Elena. Um, so there's a lot of work involved in that as well, managing the infrastructure and all, um, and the community affairs in, in general. So well, I thought uh, for some reason I had it in my mind you were also involved with the library. No, no, okay. we have a library director, Susan Johnson. Okay, yes, and that's I, I spoke to her. So yes. I think she was the one I first spoke to about the anniversary, yes. Yes. But that is quite an amazing library. I've been in there a few times. It's like really, the, I don't think there's anything else like it and no. that I'm aware of. No. Just we, the we even vast have, collection. We have um, even some of the schools in the area um, bring their kids to to Cretona to the library just Very to, nice, especially yeah. Besant Hill we still have a soft relationship with Besant Hill one of our residents is their director of technology mm, so nice. and we used to have study groups also with them when the, we'd bring the kids over so yeah. that was really nice um, we also have um, occasionally students from um, Oak Grove and Besant Hill, who will do a capstone project out of Cretona. Nice. And yeah, I mean, it must make sense for Oak Grove. They're just a short walk away. Yeah. And then we, you know, we do, we still have uh, funding from the Kern Foundation, which is very important. you say important. Kern Foundation, I lived in Kernville for a long time. Is there <laughs> probably no connection whatsoever? No, no huh? connection. Just a similar name. No. Okay. That foundation uh, uh, has supported the Cretona School for some years and our educational outreach and we and also still provide scholarships for others to come and even for extensive visits and so forth mm -hmm. grateful for that sounds like it keeps you pretty busy yeah well i'm glad you took out some time to come talk to me oh <laughs> and, and elena what what would you how would you describe your job well uh <laughs> this she's year she's the boss she's the boss um 
the big I, boss. I don't really use that no, word. No. <laughs> <laughs> Only on the mug. When you Only were. on the mug. They gave me a mug in, oh, okay. in January. Boss um, lady. That says boss lady. <laughs> um, I became resident head of Cortona in January. So mm, nice. that means that um, I, I guess a lot of decisions on infrastructure and you know how upkeep and uh, upkeep and that garden up there is so beautiful yes yes we want our gardens to to look better and maybe be more of a place where people would love to come and do you still have that uh, labyrinth do you still have a labyrinth the labyrinth is still there okay. so yes and and then of course is keeping the community together and mm-hmm. all of us working together towards our mission the mission of Cortona. So there's a lot of coordinating work to be done. Tough decisions, but yeah. I'm glad to have a board uh, to turn mm, to. Nice. For most of it. And uh, Paolo, what would you? Uh, I work in uh, education. Uh, I do some teaching for Cortona. I am also developing an online school. Mm. Um, we have a platform uh, Moodle, which is a, a great platform for courses online with interaction. And, uh, and then um, I coordinate the program that we have of training of uh, members of the society, uh, training in, in theosophy, in how to speak, in how to, to, to work with theosophical groups, etc. So I'm, I'm involved in more in that more educational aspect. Mm-hmm. The pedagogy. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, anyway, um, 100 years, that's not, that's no small thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. And uh, it's big. It's really big. Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan, just thinking out loud. Again, as so often happens, off mic, we have some of the best conversations. So just briefly, I wanted to talk about one that I forgot to bring up, which I really should have because it's fascinating, and Pablo especially, and Elena knew a lot about this particular history, but after the theosophists decided to move from their Los Angeles center, which is now adjacent to and including much of what is now Hollywood Bowl, one of the key parts of Los Angeles, they were in negotiations with the Mexican government, which I believe was the Carranza government at that time, in the early 1910s, to buy the entire state of Baja California for $75 million. Instead, after a visit by the estimable Annie Besant herself, they decided to buy in Ojai. I think I'm going to do a story about that at some point. It's just one of those fascinating cul-de-sacs of Ojai history that doesn't get the amount of light and attention that it deserves. I think there's no small town in America that has a more colorful and vivid history and where more currents of American life have a confluence. So that is a big part of the mission of the magazines. So just heads up. I, you know, if you got some insight or some information about that, I'd love to hear it. <clears throat> but I think when I get some free time on my plate, I'm going to start digging into that story a little bit about how the Theosophists almost bought Baja California and instead moved to Ojai. 
Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.